Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and unit testing in foreign languages. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Oh, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. A little cold, but uh, mm. getting used to that. I never get used to that. <laughs> it's always it's always rough the first week or so, and then I, I kind of like it. No, I never, ever like it. Hmm. Never. Yeah, I like it because I actually get a ton of work done this time of year. Like, I feel like a normal person. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not productive, but I hate the cold. And when the sun goes down at 530 in the Midwest, I feel like a normal person when I go to bed at 8 o'clock and it's dark out. <laughs> nice. So what you got this week? So... Lots and lots and lots of work on retrospective timelines. I kind of uh, reinvented the app and then unreinvented it <laughs> back. Is that, that de-invented? Something like that. So I went through a lot of UI changes last week just trying to figure out really what I want this thing to be. And one of the more interesting things I did was I had a couple of days where I put the app in a tab view and the tabs were basically the the report section that you see at the beginning of the app, like the on this day, perspective, favorites, things like that. And then a tab for regular timelines and a tab for archived timelines. And the SwiftUI version of that was really easy to set up. The SwiftUI version of tabs doesn't actually have any state persistence between tabs when you're switching, which is kind of annoying because that's definitely not how users expect iOS apps to behave. Like you switch one tab, switch to a tab, and everything on the first tab reverts back to its initial state when you go back to it. So, yeah, it's just kind of weird how that works. So I made a UIKit version of that. (laughs) which wasn't really that hard, actually. It was basically just creating like a wrapper um, and got all that working and then kind of just didn't like it. Like it looked really nice, but it felt unnecessary. Like I I was taking up a lot of room to split up three things in a way that really didn't feel justified. And it kind of hit me like... For an app like mine, using a tab view, a tab view is like the manspreading of application navigation. Oh. And it just takes up a ton of room. So I got rid of it. And instead, what I did was go back to putting everything on the initial timeline list. And then I added some sections, some collapsible sections between the timelines and the archive timelines, which was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Some of the animations are kind of wonky. I don't know if I can fix them or not. Um, but it's totally doable. I don't have the top section collapsing right now just because, but I'll probably add that as well. But the other big change I made while I was working with the tab stuff was on the iPad, we mentioned some of the issues with the master detail navigation throughout the last couple of weeks. And there was that weird workaround that I found to use padding on the outside of the navigation view to keep the master detail view, to keep the master view showing at all times. And that worked on my iPad. And basically it would, the app always looked right in landscape mode, but in portrait mode without that workaround, the master list would hide and then there would be no visual way to show it with the default navigation view in Swift. So I played around with trying to do the same thing I did with the tab view of making like a UI kit wrapper of the UI split view controller. That was way more complicated because I actually had to keep the data in sync and I ended up kind of getting some stuff working, but it was really kind of wonky and not great. So I went back to using the Swift UI version of that and as I was testing in the simulator on some smaller devices, like an iPad mini and a regular iPad, 
my workaround was working in portrait mode, but when you rotate those devices into landscape mode, then the master list shows or hides entirely. So like, this is the exact opposite behavior. You know, I, I, I could actually disable the line with the padding and then get the opposite behavior. It's like, okay, this is really messed up. So I needed to check if the device was in landscape or portrait. And of course that's not available in Swift UI. So I had to write like a environment object that I can inject from the scene delegate into the views and test for that. But that would still render after rotation. So you would rotate the iPad, the list would hide and then pop back out. I'm like, well, this is, this is just crap. <laughs> better, better than the alternative, but definitely suboptimal. Yeah. So I decided to scrap it entirely. A couple of weeks ago, I, I looked into the idea of just using stack navigation entirely on the iPad, which is all you have on the iPhone anyway. You, you have one view at a time stacked on top of the other. And in Swift UI, the default navigation style for iPad is a, that enforced master detail, that really broken master detail. But you can opt into the stack navigation style. And I, I played with that a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't like it because I couldn't figure out how to get the nice rounded corners on the table sections and table rows because that style wasn't implemented in Swift UI. Now it has been in the latest version of iOS and it, it has been whether you want it or not. <laughs> so there was no way for me to get it before. Now there's no way for me not to get it on the iPad but there's still no way for me to get it on the iPhone, which kind of bugs me. So I basically went back to using the stack navigation and then all of my list views, or really all of my views on the iPad have a, a maximum width of 800 points so that basically they just, you don't see you know 13 inch wide table rows. You kind of see things centered in the middle. And then with the new corner rounding sections, it ends up looking pretty good. Not perfect, but it's better than anything else that I have right now. And it doesn't involve the hacky workarounds of the the master detail thing. It, it doesn't involve reaching out to UI kit to reinvent the wheels. So it's, it's good enough. The only downside about this approach, and I may be able to come up with a, a fix for this too, but because I'm capping the maximum width of the list view inside those views, you can't just scroll on the edge of the iPad. You actually have to be scrolling over where the list content is. So there's kind of these hmm. these dead zones on either side of the list that don't do anything because there's technically nothing there to scroll. Right. And I've seen this in apps like uh I've seen quite a few apps like that where there's an API in UI table view called readable width. But a lot of people have been using that visual cue long before that API was around. And they were just, you know, capping the size of their view content in some way. But those views had the same behavior where you just have this dead space on the side. Where if you look at an app like Twitter on the iPad, they're actually using a full screen table view, but they're using that readable width API to keep all the content centered. And that, that just hasn't made its way to Swift UI yet. And I looked for a way to see if I could like kind of reach up into the hierarchy and set that API somewhere, but I couldn't. And it's not something you can just set like at the application level. So like all of my table views should use this. You have to set it on a per instance basis. So it's like, it's kind of a weird, you can't get there from here thing. So yeah, all that said and done by Thursday or Friday, I was back to the stack navigation and working on that. The timeline stuff, you know, added in the section stuff. I'm pretty happy with that. The animations are wonky, like I said, but it, it's pretty cool how it works. And I also, yesterday, finally found a, a halfway decent workaround to that uh, edit button in the toolbar in the navigation view, how that would sometimes stop receiving taps when you close a modal view. I, I've spent so much time on this issue, Dave. It's, <laughs> it's so, ridiculous. So what was the fix? So the fix was basically I'm using a Boolean state value instead of 
an environment value to like I was using the edit mode environment value and setting that to inactive or inactive using the edit button. So the edit button that Swift UI ships with toggles that for you and it's supposed to take care of all of that that state stuff. But it, it just wasn't working. And like it, it is toggling the state, but it's not redrawing the buttons correctly when you're closing a modal view, only under very specific circumstances. So it it wasn't happening when you cancel the modal view. It was only happening when I was saving data in core data. And I think it was just long enough. Like there was just enough of a delay that maybe the core data save and the UI updates were running on the same thread and something was being skipped. But I could actually disable the saving process, hit the done button, and it would work just fine. And then I also found out it was only happening with the edit button and other Swift UI buttons. But if I put a text view up there and give it an on tap gesture and then manually change the text between edit and done myself, I don't have the issue anymore. As long as what I'm using to change the state is a Boolean, not the inactive active thing. So it's a combination of using the on tap gesture thing and then toggling the state that way and then still passing in the edit mode state to the list view because that's what we're actually toggling here. We're toggling the list view in and out of edit mode. And that is using kind of a big chunky line that is switching between that dot active and dot inactive state and then applying a spring animation to that. So there's like a couple of different things that kind of all work together to get a viable working edit mode button. And it's there and it's done, leaving it. I probably have spent, I don't know, 30 hours on this problem. <laughs> Is this one of those ones that you had a stack overflow question about? I've had at least half a dozen. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering if you'd gone back and updated any of those to say, I found an answer. Yeah. Yeah. I went through and updated one of them yesterday. Okay. Awesome. But yeah. This is, and I wrote a blog post about it as well. But just a really, really frustrating issue. Oh, yeah. Nicely done. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So the event list. There was lots and lots of kind of refactoring work that went into that as well. Um, you know, I came up with a decent event list last week and then decided I was no longer happy with it about two hours ago. So that's a thing I got to deal with. Um, but the, <laughs> the way that I'm actually driving the event list is been totally redone and I, when I first started setting up the some of the report queries, I basically just duplicated the event list and made a, a modified version of it for that could include you know the timeline information in the cell and uh, some more complicated core data predicates. But I was you know just to get it working, I'd kind of wrote some pretty sloppy code, and then I had kind of two list views I had to kind of keep in sync. So yesterday I kind of rewrote all of that with a single list view and was a bit smarter about how I build the queries. And I ended up writing a an event data uh, view model class with an enum type. So you basically you create an instance of this with one of these six types. So whether it's one of the five reports or a timeline and if it's a timeline, you can also pass it an optional timeline. So when you you know, tap on a timeline row, you go to a list of events and query all the events for that timeline. But you have to use that timeline in as a predicate. So I, I wrote this view model. And there's probably a better way to do this, but basically each of these bits of data that this list view needs to assemble itself there is, we need a sort order, we need the predicates, we need the key path, we need the name of the view, 
So whether that's the timeline name or on this day or all events or whatever it looks like. And there's a couple other things. So basically all of those are in functions on this view model and the view model just switches on that enum that the instance has and returns a value appropriate to that. And then I can also in that same place store additional values that I can use to drive the UI. So as a quick proof of concept, I added a filter toggle on the list view. And all it does right now is you're showing a list of say all events for a timeline or all events for the system. And you hit this filter toggle and it gets rid of all of the ending date records and just shows the starting date records. And it animates them all as they collapse. And, and that's just a single value on that. And it, in that get predicate function, there's just an if statement. Like the, the get predicate function on the view model is like, I don't know, half of the document. It's probably 400 lines of code right now. And it's going to get longer and longer and longer as I write more complicated <laughs> filters. Yeah. But uh, I haven't figured out a good way to actually store those filters. And that's something I want to do further down the road is, is give people a query builder to write their own kind of saved query lists. But I need to figure out a way to actually save those and its predicates somehow. But I don't want to think about that right now. Yeah, very much a version two sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a, a good feature to add later, specifically as like this is an entire additional release for this one feature because it's it's a big enough thing. In the meantime, I'm going to add some basic filter options on that list view. So if you use the mail app um, at all, there's a tiny little filter button in the bottom left there. And when you toggle that on, the bottom toolbar changes to a bit of text that says filtered by and shows you what you're filtered by. And if you tap that, it pops open a modal with a couple of different options to filter on. That's basically what I'm going to implement for my edit list view and that modal that pops up will it'll be con it'll have a conditional list of options based on the type of report or list that you're looking at so when you're looking at say all events you may want to filter out the end dates or filter in to include the ongoing dates or you know just show me re the favorites or just show me things after a certain date, things like that. But when you're looking on the favorites, it doesn't make sense to toggle a filter for favorites. You're already, that's already implicit with the view. <laughs> so it'll be a little bit conditional what shows up there. And then I guess back to the list view that we talked about, I kind of collapsed it down. There was a screenshot that I posted on Twitter a little while ago where I collapsed list view down to basically a date and the name of the event. And on the report version of that, it also shows the timeline as a little subtitle below the event name, but that's not in that screenshot. And then you tap on the rows to go to a detail view, which is much cleaner than the one I had before. And I think, I wanted the detail view because I was using the app in the previous state where you you had a lot of data in the list view. You had those capsules circling whichever date the row was for. And that just, it was kind of hard to explain. I was showing it to some people this weekend and it was kind of like, people were like, what am I looking at? I'm like, yeah, that's not a good sign. <laughs> so I put everything back in this detail view and then simplified the list view. The way that I had the list view before is you would tap a button to open the modal for the data entry screen, but it seemed overkill to always be showing the data entry view when really you just want to look at the data. So I made this detail view is kind of a step between. You can still tap and hold on a row and edit it directly. So open the modal and edit it, or you can toggle the list into edit mode and tap the button to open the modal, or you can navigate to the detail version and tap the edit button there. So the three ways to get to editing this view. And I really like the way that this looks. It's got these small sections with a line divider between them 
but each of the sections is conditional based on the data for the event. So if there is no end date, the end date section won't show. If there's an end date, it will. If there's an end date with a, an actual end date applied, it'll also calculate a duration from the start date to the end date and show you that. If there's notes, it'll show a notes section. If there's not, it won't. So that kind of stuff. And I was looking at this and I was just before the podcast, I'm thinking, what if I just make this the list view? What if I make the list view as big as this? You just have very large rows that are still written out conditionally, but I don't have to do any, I don't know, weird iconography or anything to try to indicate what the row is for when I can just clearly show the sections right there and maybe show like a color indicator next, like a little bar next to the date. So I'm thinking about that now. Um, and I can also think of like having an option to toggle between. So show me just the list and show me the expanded list and be able to toggle between those two states. What do you think of that? I think it sounds good. The example that I'm looking at right now has a very long chunk of notes, mm -hmm. which could end up obscuring the fact that there's actually a list here if one of the items yeah. is so long but that said a i agree that most people aren't going to put tons and tons and tons of notes in here um conceptually i like it certainly as a thing that you can toggle on and off yeah um i was thinking about as you were talking i was thinking about something else dealing with your filter that you were talking about a couple minutes ago mm-hmm and you were saying that you needed to kind of remove things from the list if they've selected a view that already filters by one of those things. Mm -hmm. And instead, I'm thinking you don't have to remove items from the list. You just have to like check them and deactivate them. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much that favorites... The, the favorites option to toggle on and off disappears, but when you bring up the filter, you are already filtering by that based upon your view. And so you could just check the mark for filtering by favorites and not give them the ability to turn it off because they're in the favorites view. Yeah. It's it's similar, but just a different way of displaying it. I don't know if that yeah. had popped to your mind. Yeah, I have to play with some options there. In this whole, the filter menu is kind of like a half step to that customized query that I want later on. I think what that would probably end up looking like is you use the filter menu to create a list and then save that state as a, and give it a name. Um, so whatever I come up with, it'll be kind of like a halfway step there. I'm just not doing the saving part and creating a new name. It's basically, you've got these five lists five report views that you can customize from there. And really it might only be the, really just three of them, the favorites ongoing and the all dates are really the only ones that make sense to apply filters to. Like on this date, I'm not sure if that makes sense to it. Really apply any kind of filter logic there. And the perspective thing, I may be taking perspective out of the project for now because I keep changing what I want to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I might make that an additional you know, standalone release feature because I, I initially wanted to make that kind of an expanded version of on this day. So the on this day view just does a query for, in, in theory, it does a query because I've been too lazy to write this, but take the current date, subtract the year and find events in the database that happened on the same month and day in previous years. And then the perspective view, my initial idea was that uh, basically an expanded version of that. So maybe 15 days on either side of the current date, looking back what was happening in that time. But now I'm thinking I want to make the perspective view more of a pick a pick a specific date and time, a date or a week or a month in time, and look what was happening in that time. So that would be much more of a, it would be a much different UI where you'd have probably a calendar at the top 
that you could swipe through once and tap on a week or tap on a date and have the list view populate below it. But so yeah, I think I'm thinking about just pulling that out into a separate feature. So yeah, so in terms of the list view on edit on the edit view, I'm, I'm kind of torn between the simple list view that goes to a detail view or the simple list view that toggles into that exploded view. I think it could look pretty nice because a lot of times when I'm looking at this type of data, I'm just kind of scrolling through it and perusing through the past. That's kind of the point of this app and having everything visible, like you're scrolling through a timeline, like a Twitter timeline could be really cool. And especially if I do add images later on, being able to have just kind of these large elements like that that you're scrolling through could be really neat. And I could put a hard cap on the notes and still you know, toggle you into the, the edit view when you want to see all the notes. Like I could just limit that to three lines or five lines or some arbitrary number. 280 characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a bad idea. I, I can see it in my head and it looks really slick. Mm. Yeah, I could also put, uh, I could kind of make them into cards as well. Um, so rather than have them just list rows one after the other, I could put them in a rounded rectangle card with a nice drop shadow behind it. So it looks like you're scrolling through a series of cards and the card sizes are you know adapted based on the content that they have. Mm -hmm. that, could, that could look pretty nice. In that context, it may not make as much sense to sort by, like to have the sections by years in the list view because they won't really, won't really be prominent anymore. But I think that would probably be the only difference in that design. But anyway, I need to figure it out because I need to get this thing out there. <laughs> so on the topic of getting this thing out there, I've been thinking about the test flight thing and I guess I've been thinking about not doing a test flight thing. And I don't know if this is a good idea or a bad idea, but this is going to be a paid upfront app. And some of the things I saw recently with other people doing public test flights is getting bad reviews on launch day because the testers have to pay for the app. Mm. Like, <laughs> Like, like there was, I forget exactly which one it was. It might've been the Dark Noise app, but there was a review of like, how dare you tr trick me into using this software and then charge for it? Like just stuff like that. I'm like, I don't think I want to deal with people like that. Like I could still well, do a private test flight, but. Yeah, I, I would probably do a test flight, but select your testers. Yeah. Um. But at this point, I'm I'm pretty close to kind of wrapping this up, and I'm I can't I, I keep trying to draw a line in the sand of like this is the version <laughs> that's testing, and this is the version that I'm shipping. There isn't anything that I want to show to testers that I don't want in the app store, so I can't figure out where to draw the line. You see what I mean? Hmm. Like if I had. Like the, the app has been in a usable state for the last three or four weeks, but if I had opened a test flight then and people were using it, what they're going to get based on the work that I've done this week is totally different. And I, I just don't feel like I want to like start setting expectations that the app is going to be a certain way until I really decide. And when I really decide is when I'm pushing that out into the store. Mm. And I'm also thinking about all the... I don't know. I, I'm definitely rationalizing here, like trying to get weasel my way out of it. But I, I, it just seems like, like a lot of extra work. Like you, it's a different submission process. It's a different set of steps to set up and manage, and you know, manage who's in the test flight thing. It's a different, like, not code base, but like a different part of the project to manage. And I guess this is one area where I'm really good at testing software mm -hmm. and as a result I've always been comfortable shipping 
my own software and doing my own testing. Like that's one of the reasons that I do pretty well as a consultant on the FileMaker and the website. I don't have a third-party testing option for customers. I do the testing. They can do a, a round of testing and feedback, but I'm pretty satisfied with my ability to do that stuff. I'm sure I'm going to find bugs and weird issues that I'm not seeing, but I'm pretty exhaustive with this stuff now. So with all of that Weasley rationalization, what do you think? Should I do a test flight? I think the uh, with that perspective on testing, I think the only thing that the test flight really gives you is access to more pieces of hardware. Mm-hmm. And by controlling the size of your test flight group, you can also um, make sure that you're properly managing expectations. Like if you've got the emails for all of these people and you can you can send out an email blast independent of a test flight version to go, this is what I changed. This is why I changed it. You know, I think you can do some of that stuff in test flight, but regardless, you can make it a more personal conversation. But the the big thing would be just getting it on more pieces of hardware than you personally have access to. You've bumped mm-hmm. into a number of weird bugs that happened on particular kinds of devices at particular sizes and it might be worthwhile to get more access there. Alternately, you could depend upon your first version yourself, but maybe go test flight for later revisions. Yeah, that's an option as well. Like I know several developers who just kind of keep an ongoing test flight mm-hmm. as they're working on new stuff. So yeah, may do something like that. I don't know. At this stage, I'm I'm leaning towards not doing it because I've definitely been tearing through my to-do list of like stuff that is has to be done versus stuff that would be nice to be done, and been kind of separating that stuff out of the project as much as possible. And it seems to me like doing a test flight thing is just an additional bit of complexity that I probably don't need to worry about for version one of this app or version one of the first app that I'm putting in the store. That's not random arrow. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with it. What's going on with you? Well, I had a fair amount of non-code stuff this week. Uh, First, a quick rider update. Uh, Still no response from them. So I've abandoned it for now. Um, maybe I'll dig into it again later or if they have some kind of response. But honestly, at this point, if they released a new version that fixed the problem and didn't specifically tell me, I wouldn't notice. Um, I, I don't know what else to say. Uh, I'm not exactly thrilled with the kind of support I've gotten so far. If if there's a nice blog post that clears up this problem, nobody's pointed me to it. And I'm pretty good at Google Foo. Yeah. It, if there's a good answer out there, I couldn't find it. So, yeah. I mean, it's got a lot going for it. But if I can't use it the way I need to use it, it's going to get backburnered for now. I got to uh, take my laptop into the Apple Store to mm. fix the keyboard. Um, the, it was the left command key, which is basically the command key that I use 95% of the time. And I could use it fine with an external keyboard, which is how I actually use the laptop most of the time, but I wanted to be able to get more portable and remapping my muscle memory was not working. So took it in, they replaced, they aired it out, replaced the keycap that did not get it back to a hundred percent functionality. And so I ended up getting the entire top case replaced. So I've got a whole new keyboard that seems all happy. So yay. Uh, did find a fun trick that cut through tons of discussion when I got to the Apple store, which was using the keyboard viewer that's built into Mac OS. And so there's a on-screen representation of the keyboard you're typing on And I could hold down that command key and you could actually see it flicker on and off on screen. 
So it was really easy. I just walked in, brought up the keyboard viewer, hit that button, and they went, yep, that's busted. <laughs> we'll go see if we can fix it, and if not, we'll replace the top case. Bye. And I was basically done talking to the guy about three minutes. So, quick tip for those playing with that. I could just hit the button a couple of times, and you could just watch the thing flicker, hit the other command key, and it's on, off, on, off. And it's very clear and definite in a way that they understand that these two keys are functioning differently done mm. so quick tip for those having keyboard problems it was also nice for confirming a that that was a problem and b that i wasn't really having problems with any of the other keys yeah i could quickly just run through every key on the keyboard and go yep these are this is bad all the other ones seem to be working fine that's the only one i need to report there's also TEDx Columbus coming up this Friday, and hmm. I've been taking a slightly larger role this year, uh, oh, doing okay. a little bit of coaching for one of the speakers. And they've also got me uh, being their voice of God. <laughs> That's how I think <laughs> of you. <laughs> they they need a, a announcer, not for individual talks, but I, I'm. As far as I know, it's more like the, if, we love if you take photos, but please turn off your flash, things of that mm -hmm. nature, you know, at the beginning and then probably another round of it when people come back from the, at least the main intermission. So that'll be fun. Um, yeah. I've actually got all... a, I've got a record in my a list of fun stuff in retrospective timelines of your TEDx talk from last November 16th. So, just kind of yeah. came that the other day. It should show up in my uh, on this day view in a couple of days. I don't know if we have many Columbus people in our listener group, but they're actually doing a TEDx Columbus Women again this year, cool. which is coming up three or four weeks later. Nice, and that's also very cool. More anything that makes more TEDx Columbus makes me happy. Yeah. It's literally one of my favorite days of the year. So if I get yeah. two of those a year, that's fantastic. Uh, and then I was having some plumbing fun. Uh, I got a friend in from out of town. And so I finally got one of my upstairs rooms that was mostly for storage, kind of cleared out and turned into a guest bedroom. And there's a bathroom up there. And that bathroom hasn't been used in a decade or more. I just, I don't spend a lot of time up there. And so in the process of making sure that that worked, I uh, turned on the water to the toilet and filled up the tank and hit the flush and about a third of the water in the tank just spilled out on the floor. Oh, nice. Bad seal. So contact a plumber friend, get him in. He replaces the innards for that stuff. So it's forming a good seal and then does a little bit more testing and finds out that I've got a substantive leak inside the wall. Mm. Um, it's like a real life memory leak. Uh, yes. And once we dug into the wall and got a good look at it, it's a substantive leak. So, after spending lots and lots of money getting large chunks of very old plumbing replaced, I'm actually kind of happy that the toilet was broken. Because if the toilet was completely functional, I wouldn't have known, or I wouldn't have had the plumber look, so I wouldn't have noticed the leak, which means my guest would have been flushing water and worse into my walls all week. <laughs> So, in the long run, good thing. Short term, oh my gosh. So, yeah. But, good progress on the parser. <laughs> uh, let and while are done. Oh, nice. So, while is solid. I went in and added the white space support that I needed. My unit tests are coming out great. So, basically, the parser is done. Kind of. Yeah, that's, that's, like, that's like beating one of those dual boss fights <laughs> you've been struggling with for, for weeks. You finally leveled up and beat them. <laughs> yes. So, basically, I'm 
now breaking down FileMaker calculations, valid FileMaker calculations into their component parts with a so far high degree of accuracy, which is fan-freaking-tastic. That said, um, I got to do a little bit of expansion for supporting alternate languages. The, for the most part, the parser doesn't know anything about most of the FileMaker functions. It just knows what a function call looks like and just says, yeah, it's going to, you know, it open paren, close paren, and a bunch of parameters separated by commas. And it doesn't really care beyond that point right now, except for the special cases. So while let substitute and evaluate, because they've got that alternate um, uh, form they have to be called out explicitly by name. So I need to add support for those names in the other 10 languages that FileMaker supports. Um, which, again, I've got that data. So not a huge problem, but it just needs to be added and then unit tests for those. So that's, you know, 40 more unit tests. And then what I kind of want to do is go back and run through all my unit tests again, rewriting and restructuring. Two problems. One, um, as I mentioned before, I ran into a couple of problems along the way with unit tests that I thought were testing one thing and were actually testing something else. And some of these unit tests were written a month and a half, two months ago. And I don't know that the very old ones are properly structured. So if I go back through and re-examine them and see what's happening there, I can make sure with my new eyes that they're testing for the things that I want to test for. And there's also the fact that, like, my last unit test for the most complicated version of while with lots and lots of white space looks uh, entirely different from my very old unit tests. They're structured differently. They talk about the problem differently. They look at the whole thing differently. And I'm pretty sure that this new version is more rigorous and better structured than the old one. Hmm. And so by going through and re-examining some of the old ones, I want to apply that same rigor so that I can have that same level of confidence. Like, my confidence in while is really good. Less so in some of, arguably, some of the simpler things. Like, a lot of these unit tests are two or three lines long. But I just want to go through and make sure that they're doing what I really want them to do. Mm -hmm. And in the process... That will give me the opportunity to re-examine some of the grammar rules that I haven't looked at in a couple of months. So, for example, while, with its four possible variant structures, basically uh, no bracket notation, brackets at the beginning, brackets at the end, or brackets in both. Mm. All of that is covered in basically one line of grammar code. It's really clean and easy to understand. Substitute, as the first one that I did, is a mess. <laughs> and so I want to go back and rewrite the substitute grammar with my new knowledge, but that's going to require rewriting the unit tests for them as well. So, but when I'm done with all of that, it will be a much more easily maintained and much more easily queried structure. So kind of at every stage of this process, I learn more and then I really want to go back and revise some of my old happy stable code to take advantage of that knowledge. Like yeah. my current handling of substitute works, but it's not right. So really like to go in there. Uh, and, um, yeah, then I got into, since kind of the parser was done, I'm making finger quotes around done. <laughs> I 
I started unit testing on errors. So on one side, the process that I'm using in the current state of the project means that I don't have to worry about syntax errors in the calculations that I'm getting. The calculations that I'll be pulling out of the XML have been pre-validated by FileMaker. Mm -hmm. There's no way in FileMaker to store an invalid calculation. So it's not so much for that, but A, I want to make sure that if by some chance an error pops up, I can catch it. And B, I want to add this error trapping code to all the unit tests. Because the biggest issue that I can bump into with these is if the grammar is off by a little bit, the parser will parse a calculation and then find a bad character, or at least what it thinks is a bad character, and it semi-silently moves past it. Hmm. So the parser doesn't want to crash if you hand it poorly formed stuff. So it basically ejects an error message to a stream and just goes, error here. Depending upon how you write your parser, you may actually be able to catch syntax errors in multiple lines of code. So they don't want the parser to just stop when it hits the first error. It wants to keep trying to parse. And so you can actually have more than one bad character. Now, if you're actually editing a calculation, all I care about is the first one. And I'll flag you on that one and then tell you about the next one. It might be interesting to try and do a more, you've got a problem here, here, and here in your calculation, but I'm not sure I'm ready to go that far yet. <laughs> but one of the things that's happening with this, with all the unit tests that I've basically written so far, is that if it bumps into a bad character, that isn't caught by the unit tests. So as long as I was getting the right answers from the questions I was asking, I said the test passed. But if the parser generates a single error in the process of looking at that, it's actually a problem. So yeah. Hmm. Um, so it, like one of the things that's happening right now is if I do, say I make a function call like uh, trim. Trim which removes white space around some value trim this field open paren field name and then miss the close paren right now that generates an error which is great that's what i want for some reason what if i put in the close paren but leave out an open paren that matches it it doesn't generate an error I'd really like to find out why it's not actually critical to the process now. And so I can largely back burner that one because again, I'm only going to be getting validated calculations, but if the parser is not doing what I expect it to do, I'd like to understand why it's not. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that would keep me up at night. Like, right. I know this right. is broken, but you're not telling me it's broken. Right. And you're, you're not noticing that it's broken, so what else are you missing? Mm -hmm. Like, it, it feels like it's got to be a parsing a, a problem somewhere in the grammar. So, um, yeah. So, I just really want to... I don't have to have the full answer. I just have to have enough of the answer at this stage. And then I can go back and expand that later. And particularly where expansion comes in is right now, let's say you've got that open paren, but no close paren. Right now, the parser generates the error at the end of the calculation. It says, I expected a close paren, but didn't get one. Whereas in my perspective, the error is kind of most closely associated with the open paren. Hmm. Saying, this open paren was never closed. That's a more useful error message than, well, I was expecting a closed paren in here. And that's exacerbated by the fact that the parser doesn't know that only a closed paren goes there because it could be expecting a semicolon 
and then another parameter. And so the error message goes, well, there's these two or three options. It could have been one of these. And it's just spitting it out at the tail end of the thing. Where the character that's really causing the problem is that open paren. And so when I get to the point of trying to tell people where the problems are in a calculation that they've just free-handed in my tool, I want to be able to give them decent error messages. And decent error messages when parsing code turns out uh, non-trivial. <laughs> it's going to require some smarter parsing. By the time you learn everything there is to learn about this problem space, you're going to end up making like a FileMaker IDE that just generates FileMaker that you can copy back into a, a file. Well, in theory, you won't need to copy it back into the file. You'll be able to stick it into the XML and then have FileMaker render that into a database. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, I mean, just edit it right there in the XML and dink, spit out a new file. Um, so, yeah. I'd really like to do some... Now that I've got a thing that does the parsing, I'd really like to do some kind of large-scale batch testing. Especially now that the code that I have that I can just hand it any old string and it'll try and parse it. Not in the unit testing, but in my kind of test, my, my custom test system. Um, there's nothing to stop me from feeding that 5,000 calculations. <laughs> and I know how to parse XML. So what I really want to do then is take three or four of the largest FileMaker DDRs that I've got from customers and feed every single one of those calculations through this. Just as like a large scale randomization. And so hand it a 5,000 character calculation <laughs> and make sure that A, that generates no parsing errors and B, that what I got out looks as though it's properly handling the individual pieces. That'll come in helpful later when I start doing the more elaborate stuff, which is the reconstructor. Mm -hmm. I have broken this thing down into its contiguous parts. Now hand me back XML that properly represents that structure. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I had kind of uh, uh, roughed that in. There's some good scaffolding there and some basic work. And I'm considering kind of reconstructing that. I talked about whether to do one pass or two. Kind of, there's information that I don't know about the calculation until A, after it's been broken into the, the parts, but then B, compared to other data in the XML. Like I can see a thing and go, this is a function call. But I know that it's not a standard function because it's not in the standard function list. But I also, so is it a custom function or is it a plugin function? That's not clear from just a raw text representation of the calculation. And so I've got to have a thing that does more detailed categorization of some of these moving parts. And so the first thought was have the parser spit out XML that is not completely discriminated and then do a second pass that goes through that XML and recategorizes some of the nodes. And that'll work, but I think I can actually do, I think I can do that in one pass without making the one pass too complicated. I was concerned about having to tell the parser too much information about the database at large to be able to do it in a single pass. But it turns out that the reconstruction into XML all happens in one file. And so it's bopping through and looking at all those moving parts and wrapping them in the right kind of XML. So all I have to do is tell that one part about the larger database and it can apply some logic to properly categorize some of those pieces. You know, there are mm -hmm. spots where if you don't know what you're looking at, it could be a field name, a custom function, or a plugin function. 
or plugin versus custom function or all these weird little categorizations. Mm -hmm. So I think I can actually do that in one pass, which A, will be nice because it'll be faster. I won't have to take text, turn it into XML, parse the XML, recategorize the XML, and write the XML back out again. <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm trying to figure out exactly what... Like, I built this whole parser thing, and I know how to talk to it, but I need to figure out... Once I encapsulate the entire parser, what does the API to that look like? Like, how do I really want to talk to this? How simple can it be? And how simple is too simple where I'm messing things up? Mm -hmm. And trying to thread that line so I'm getting enough detail, the right amount of detail, to make it work. So, yeah. So, lots more unit testing reconstructing some code, cleaning up some stuff that hasn't aged well, and uh, wrapping it up in a larger API. Those are my next steps. Nice. So I had a, a quick mini topic if we have time. Sure. So the last couple of weeks, I have started making tons and tons of progress on my app. And... I was kind of wondering why, like, why am I getting more done now than I was just a couple weeks ago? And I think I identified part of the problem was just the way that I was approaching the work, which I basically have this huge document of everything I want to do for the app. And I've been kind of treating it as the project. And I don't do that with any other project. When I'm doing a consulting project, I always break the work down into one or two week iterations or chunks of work and think about it in discrete chunks. But for some reason, I just didn't do that with this project. And I ended up just kind of working on little bits of lots of things at once, but also kind of having kind of a, a mental overload of like this project is too big and kind of resisting working on it a lot of times as well and it was only the last couple of weeks that i didn't necessarily break it down into a small enough chunk it's that that list of stuff that was remaining got small enough to feel manageable again and i'm like wait i'm making i'm making a ton of progress like really quickly now so i thought that was kind of a weird i don't know side effect of how i was approaching the project or how i was not mindfully approaching the project and uh i think it's it's important to kind of make myself break these things into mini projects when necessary so i don't end up doing that to myself again it's just kind of weird like all of the stuff that i do as a consultant went out the door when i'm just doing my <laughs> own thing <laughs> there's there's also you're at kind of this magical point in an app development where a you have a functional app and every modification that you make leaves you with a functional app mm -hmm. yeah and so it makes it easier to see small tasks as independent from each other because when you finish a chunk it's not like that immediately chains into another chunk mm -hmm. it's it, it's a discrete element um, or at least that's been my experience is that you hit this spot where suddenly your, your productivity goes through the roof because you can just pound out individual things and each of those things has a noticeable improvement to the app. And so it's just always getting better as opposed to getting closer and closer to working. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely probably a combination of those things of like having a more reasonable list of things that have to be done as well as the things that have to be done are, are discrete enough that I can work on. Like I can completely redo the event list view without touching the database schema or the core data code. Where before those things kind of had to go together until they were all working. So yeah. 
definitely probably a little bit of everything. But just kind of a reminder to myself in the future to spend time breaking the projects down. And, you know, usually with a consulting project, I, you know, meet with the customer every week and review the work. And I always have a a time after that meeting where I'm reviewing that meeting in my meeting notes and taking that all of those notes and turning that into my to-do list for the week. And I didn't really have that process for this project. I just had this kind of continuous sit down and work until I'm frustrated and stop and then repeat. And over the last couple of weeks, I've kind of gotten the list down into a manageable thing. And then several times a week, or at least once a week, you know, go to the coffee shop or somewhere away from the Mac and go over the, the project notes and kind of update the to-do list and update the history. And uh, it's become a lot more manageable. Yeah. Well, that was a small topic. Yeah. <laughs> Here's another small one. Yeah. For the first time since early 2017, I own absolutely zero VR headsets. Even even the foam things that wrap around a phone? None of it. It's all gone. Wow. This this is the end of an era. Something like that, yeah. So I had, uh, a couple of months ago, I'd gotten rid of a few of the headsets. You know, I had sold the Vive and the Windows Mixed Reality headset and even got rid of the Windows PC and got rid of the Oculus rift because i was just going to keep the oculus quest which i just got a couple months ago and uh i gave away the daydream views a while ago i gave away a windows mixed reality headset so at one point i i have owned nine different headsets i don't think i've ever had seven of them at more than seven at the same time but uh now i have zero and the last two to go were the oculus go and the oculus quest and those were the ones that I decided to keep when I got rid of everything else, when I was moving away from VR development and just kind of keeping it as a consumer item. And the only reason I got rid of those is just because I'm just not that crazy about their parent company. Uh-huh. And at the end of the day, it just kind of came down to, do I want to, do I want this thing more than I dislike this other thing and my dislike of the other thing won out. So I got rid of it. I will probably end up with a VR headset in the future, but I'm probably just going to end up getting a PSVR instead, which okay. has its limitations, but it's for the, the use that I get out of it. And also like the use I get out of it, I think it would be a good fit. I don't really mind the tether versus the wireless thing. Um, a lot of the good games are on there, but it also has the knock-on effect of it's got a really high barrier to entry for development, so it won't be as tempting to just oh I'm just <laughs> I'm just gonna spin up a, a new VR app. <laughs> a little bit of future proofing there. <laughs> Yeah, there are times that I've made hardware decisions based upon what I can develop for. And mm. I don't know that I'd properly considered the value of getting a device that I absolutely 100% cannot develop for. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that I can't. It's just that it's such yeah. a pain yeah. to get into their program. and Yeah. It, it's not a casual development platform. It's for businesses. You've got to sign up through their business program. You've got to work on a static IP connected to their network, like all kinds of weird stuff. So yeah, I'll probably end up with a PSVR maybe around the holidays this year or early next year if there's some sales or maybe just waiting until the PS5 because the PSVR 2 is starting to sound pretty appealing. Like they're making a huge jump from the first gen to the second gen. In terms of, like, even if only half of the stuff that I write about is true, it would be one of the better headsets on the market. Yeah, yeah. jumping into the next the next generation of headsets will, if nothing else, bring with it new experiences. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only thing that I really miss is the Oculus Go. The Quest was not actually that hard to get rid of because I, I liked it at first and I mentioned that it was kind of physically uncomfortable and I just never got used to it. And it just became this thing of like, well, I can hang out and play this game for a while, but I've got kind of a hard limit of like, when does it start to hurt to wear this headset? And uh, that's pretty much the only headset that was really like that. And it's just, it was just hmm. too heavy and too much weight on the face. And uh, so I just ended up not using it as much. The Go was much harder to get rid of because I really like that headset. And I had a ton of apps in there. Spent a ton of time watching movies and videos and educational experiences and playing some casual games and attending live events and stuff like that. Hanging out in social VR places. So I kind of missed that one. And if anybody else ever made a viable standalone headset, I would probably jump on it. And I, I say viable because there are other options. Like HTC right. has a standalone headset, but it's kind of a mess. And uh, LG, I think it was LG. LG or Lenovo made one with Daydream, but that platform is falling apart as well. In fact, Google's new phones don't even support the Daydream platform anymore. Oh. So, yeah, pretty much dead. And uh, somebody actually posted a, a like retweeted a an announcement that the Pixel 4 phones will not support Daydream. And it said, this is my review of Google Stadia. Like, ouch. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Can't really count on that to be around. But uh, the PlayStation thing will probably be what I end up having if I want VR in the future. If Apple ever made some kind of standalone VR headset, that would probably be really cool. If uh, Nintendo made one, that would probably be amazing. <laughs> um, but both of them seem to be holding back. Probably waiting to. there's a much bigger market available. Yeah, no VR for Joe. <laughs> and as soon as we get done with the podcast, I'm going to be introducing somebody to the Vive. Nice. So, well, hope they like it. Don't don't I, send I, them this segment. I, I kind of hope they don't. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's just an expensive thing to get into. Yeah, I mean it's a ton but, of fun, but like the things that like I don't really want a Windows PC. It, there's not really a good solution to using it with a Mac. And I don't really want a whole second PC around. And then the standalone options were pretty much limited to Oculus, which are owned by Facebook. So, like, that leaves me with PlayStation. And the current generation is off the list. Yeah, which that's also the only one I haven't tried. So I may try that and think it's terrible. But from what I heard, as a headset... It's one of the better ones as the controllers. It's the controllers are kind of bad, but if people were able to play Beat Saber with it, that said something. Yeah, get, getting into VR just to play Beat Saber is that's an expensive game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's why I was thinking about waiting for after the holidays to either find some sales during the holidays for the PSVR or get a secondhand one for cheap. Because I don't really want to, you know, spend five or six hundred dollars on a basically four-year-old product. Anyway, we should quit rambling. Do you want to do an outro or just uh, 